Hello, and welcome back to the Neurodiverging Podcast. My name is Danielle Sullivan. I am the lead coach at Neurodiverging Coaching at neurodiverging.com, as well as a parent to ADHD and autistic children and an autistic person myself. Today, I am so happy to feature an interview with Dr. Perry LaRock, who is the founder and president of Mansfield Hall, which is an innovative residential college support program for diverse learners. He earned his doctorate in special education from the University of Wisconsin and has served in a variety of leadership roles serving at-risk youth and people with disabilities. Dr. LaRock is also the co-founder of the College Steps Program, a nonprofit with a mission of providing post-secondary education to students with developmental disabilities in various locations across the East Coast. So Dr. LaRock has done a lot of things. Today, we are mostly talking about his book, which recently came out earlier this year, 2022, called Taking Flight. And it is basically a manual, a primer for how to um, make college work for you as a neurodiverse student or a non-traditional student. Dr. LaRock believes that everybody deserves education as a basic fundamental civil right. And we talk a lot in this episode about what college students need to do well and to thrive in the kind of conventional college environment, what colleges need to be doing better in order to support these students and all of the talents and strengths that they're really bringing to the world, and also what's wrong with the system of education in the United States currently that is limiting uh, students' access to good education, good public education at the college level. So I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Perry LaRock to the podcast today. Before we dive into that, really quick, a quick plug to say thank you to all of my patrons who support this podcast on patreon.com patrons support the podcast by pledging a dollar five bucks ten bucks a month um, for the two podcasts we do a month and helping me fund this um, make it go (laughs) so i really appreciate you thank you so much for being here please check out their names in the transcript linked below i am so thankful for them and they really make the neurodiverging podcast possible if you would like to become a patron you can start at a dollar or two a month it's patreon.com slash neurodiverging Diverging. And there are some really great perks, both coaching perks as, as a life coach and also uh, neurodiversity resource perks associated with becoming a patron. So I appreciate your support. And now without further ado, let's talk to Dr. LaRock. Welcome to the Neurodiverging Podcast. Thank you for being here. Today we're interviewing Dr. Perry LaRock. I'm so excited you're here. Would you be willing, I know you have a doctor in special education and you've done so much work serving students with disabilities. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit just about what you've been up to recently and your background? Yeah, well, um, (laughs) so I have, you know, crazy enough been in the field now for more than 25 years, which Mm -hmm. is kind of scary to say. Um, I started off as a special education teacher. I actually was raised um, at a summer camp. And Mm -hmm. so I was, for all the camp brats out there, I was a camp rat and um, came from a long line of educators. My dad was a school psychologist. My mom was a preschool teacher and director for like 43 years. Uh, my brother who works with me now is a school psychologist. My sister's a guidance counselor. My sister-in-law is a third grade teacher. My wife is a clinical psychologist. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. My grandmother taught in a one room school in Northern mm-hmm. Wisconsin. Wow. Uh, so I, we have education in the blood. Um, so I, you know, I was really more interested and motivated to work with students who had diverse learning needs. Um, and so I went to the university of Wisconsin and did my, um, undergraduate specifically focusing on kids with behavioral and emotional disabilities and taught for a few years, ended up teaching also in a psychiatric, um, children's psychiatric hospital inpatient, um, which was wonderful, um, and then decided to go back to get my doctorate in education, special education, 
and um, sort of got roped into academia uh, mm-hmm. for a Don't while. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I loved it, and it was great. Um, and worked at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater and SUNY Potsdam, and then ended up sort of finishing out my career at uh, Northern Vermont University, which was formerly called Johnson State College, where I ran the special education um, graduate program. And I bring all this up because one of the pieces that sort of had, you know, kind of kept coming back to me throughout this entire career is sort of, as I would say in a presentation of like, where does the sidewalk end for our students? Mm-hmm. And I was just seeing this huge gap of services. Yeah. Once a student was leaving high school and um, when I was teaching in California, I said to my co one of my co-teachers, I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if our students could go to college? And he's like, oh yeah, that would be great, but that's never going to happen. And that was like mm-hmm. in 2000. And sort of that kind of kept coming back to me as, as why, why, why not? You know, mm-hmm. why couldn't students or why couldn't anybody go to college if that's what they, they wanted to continue their learning. Um, and then when I was a professor, I was kind of working on the inside and looking at all of these just really talented students who weren't failing out because they weren't motivated or weren't failing out uh, because that they didn't have the desire to get the degree or they weren't smart enough. It was just that the system and the structure in which, you know, asking to operate within mm-hmm. just wasn't appropriate for them. And we were losing all this talent and just this diversity because of the system and not because of the actual students. I originally had partnered with um, the University of Vermont when I was a professor at Johnson State, and we applied for one of the first um, federal grants to to offer students with intellectual disabilities an opportunity to participate on a college campus. And, and the Think College program is actually still up and running at the University of Vermont. And we brought that program to campus. It was absolutely amazing. And then um, I sort of uh, helped to spin that program into what's now the College Steps program, co-founded that. And that program is now across the East Coast, supporting students with disabilities in colleges all across the East Coast, which is just wonderful. Um, And what ended up happening for me was that I was still seeing this group of kids. So the the original Think College uh, grant Um, The eligibility for it was for a student with an intellectual disability and the federal government basically said, um, use the criteria of a 75 IQ or below, which Mm -hmm. um, most professional thinks is, is nonsense, but um, (laughs) the, uh, but it was, it was, it was how we got our money. And Mm so we really only could serve students who qualified. And so um, we were getting a lot of phone calls uh, from families saying, I heard about your program. Can you work with my son or daughter? And I'd say, well, they need to have an intellectual disability. And they say, oh, well, they're, they're really bright. They're really motivated, mm-hmm. really smart. They just really have, uh, they're going to have a really hard time in college. They need all this additional support. But what, if they get that support, they'll be really successful. Mm-hmm. And we'd have to say no. And on the flip side, the college was reaching out to us um, and Johnson State College at the time and, and probably still to this day dealt with a higher population of um, students at risk. Mm-hmm. And so they were dealing with a lot of students with some diverse learning needs as well, where they were coming to us and saying, hey, this kid would be great for your program. And we're like, well, we we need to have a demonstrated intellectual disability in order mm-hmm. for them to qualify. And so this niche of kids sort of this, this, that were falling through the cracks in my mind, 
um, was really what spawned the idea for Mansfield Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I created Mansfield Hall in 2013. We're, we're going on our 10th anniversary coming up here, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, um, it's really great. Yeah. And so if, if the time flew by, <laughs> um, I like had no kids and now I have an eight-year-old, a mm-hmm. six-year-old and a three-year-old. So it's like, you know, personally and professionally. That's where your time yeah. went. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, really we wanted, I wanted to create a program that would provide these students with the support necessary for them to be successful in college. And so we created Mansfield Hall in Burlington, Vermont. Um, and then just given the demand, we expanded it to Madison, Wisconsin, and now to Eugene, Oregon. And we just announced that we're launching a program in um, Reading, England, just outside of London. Wow. And so um, so that was uh, sort of the big project that I'd taken on for um, the past 10 years. And we recently added um, a program called Virtual Hall, which is online learning and support. Um, so it's sort of all of the support we'd provide for a Mansfield Hall student. Um, but now we provide it virtually and students mm-hmm. are able to, to be anywhere in the country and get a, a level of support that they need to do well in college. And then through all, all of that, um, somehow I had time to also write, um, a book, mm-hmm. uh, taking flight, um, the guide to college for, um, diverse learners and non-traditional students, which is really just sort of the roadmap mm-hmm. for a student to kind of figure out how do I do college? Not like, not the pieces of like, how do you learn in college, but more of like, how do you overcome the system? So in some ways yes. it's like insider's guide to reducing this cognitive load at all of the hidden rules and demystifying this experience and making it a more level playing field than sort of the shortcuts and, and mm-hmm. how does a student with a disability really be successful um, on a college campus? Yeah. So um, that's a long answer to what I've been up to, but um, that should, <laughs> you have that a lot of things going happen. on. Yeah. <laughs> no. So I, I think I read your book. Time has got away from me, but I think it was in March and I immediately recommended it to like six people I knew <laughs> because um, I think I, I, so I'm a coach. I work with a lot of uh, a lot of college students who have made it into either a two-year program or a traditional four-year program, but are really struggling from not being able to access uh, the supports they need with the disability services that are on campus, or not knowing what to ask for, or not having the exact diagnosis code you need to get the thing, um, mm-hmm. and are are sort of falling through the cracks, as you described. Um, and some of it is stuff as a coach that you can work on, like we can support executive function learning, we can support, you know, but a lot of it is systemic. It's, it's yeah. how education is built. And I really appreciated how direct you were in your book about that, because I tell, I tell students that all the time, like the, the systems are ableist, the systems are built for, you know, for what education was and who it was for in the 1800s and not um, who it is for now and, and what it's supposed to be now. Um, and I really appreciated that your book was so practical um, and so clear in like, this is how we talk. This is what we asked for. This is, these are some of the things you can get. This is how you frame your ask. So you get the, the result mm-hmm. that you need and really acknowledge that system, the system wide issue of the education system and, and broader systems uh, as well um, in a way that I haven't seen in other kinds of books that are just sort of like, here's how you learn executive function skills. Here's how you yeah. study. Like that stuff's important, but it doesn't fix what a lot of these kids are struggling with. So I just, I just wanted to say, I really appreciated that. Um, yeah. There's a lot of hoop jumping. I, I oh think. my gosh. <laughs> and, and I mean, I think, and that's, and we, we take that for granted. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, my wife works with refugees and, um, and she brings this up all the time. And we have, there's a lot in common actually in sort of this 
population of people living in America, whether they have a disability or whether they're mm. new Americans of sort of managing these bureaucratic systems. And she's yeah. like, well, geez, it took me like half a day to fix this problem with mm-hmm. our bill. I can't even imagine what it would be like for someone who's using English as a second language or someone with a disability who can't advocate on behalf of themselves. Mm-hmm. And in many, in many cases, even right down to the term non-traditional student applies mm-hmm. to first-generation college students. And we wanted to expand the focus of the book to also be people who don't know how to do college. Yeah. Um, you know, right down to when a professor says that you can't do extra credit or that you can't turn in an assignment late. Mm-hmm. Most of us look at that and be like, yeah, until you ask. Yeah. Nice. And then yeah. they'll let you do it. Mm-hmm. But for a first generation student or for a student with a disability who can't advocate for themselves, mm-hmm. might just take that as gospel. Yeah. Where half the class is getting around some of those rules or, you mm-hmm. know, getting the benefit of the doubt. I call them the benefit of the doubt points. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've developed a relationship with this professor, so it's going to be a little bit harder for them to give me that minus instead of the, po- the mm-hmm. plus or um, when I had to get into this class at the last minute because I stopped by and, um, you know, flash my puppy dog eyes at the secretary every day, <laughs> all the power at the college mm-hmm. anyway, they got me into the class. And so yeah. I wanted to make sure that we were able to, to just be really explicit about mm-hmm. the actual process. And I think that's a lot of what I liked because as an autistic person myself who works with a lot of autistic people, you know, it's not universal, but a lot of us do have sort of uh, different kind of culture, different social norms that we're used to using. And so, like you said, that sort of literal, uh, we're looking for the explicit rule and we're not going to always read. Some of us can. A lot of us, though, are not going to read implicit um, sort of gestures or, or knowledge and get that knowledge the way that um, a neurotypical student might. And so right. it's just I think that's a lot actually to to think back about what I liked about the book because it really did directly say, this is what you do. This is the information that is not being told to you that you can really use. So I really appreciated that sort of, um, and that kind of permission to push a little bit um, yeah. and, and to really like, you know, disability offices are supposed to give you this. It's okay to ask for it kind of language was really helpful to me personally. Um, and I, you know, I passed it on to a lot of students. And I think that the heart, I think the biggest myth about college, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to include some more of the, 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 you know, the autism specific mm-hmm. programs popping up at colleges across the country, yeah. um, as well-intentioned as all of that is. Um, and I think it's wonderful. I mean, when mm-hmm. Mansfield all started 10 years ago, I think there were like 15 or 20 college-based programs mm-hmm. total. And now I think they're over 300. There's so a lot it's, more. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. I I still think that there is this, um, that there is still a heavy amount of responsibility on the individual student Mm -hmm. to still go out and get what they want. And, um, and there's no amount of us as coaches or professionals that can do it for them. Mm -hmm. And so when I was first writing the book, the publisher said, you know, you're writing this book to this audience of young adults. And quite frankly, young adults don't buy that many books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so could you change it to the parents? And I mm-hmm. said, no, absolutely not. And because it's not the parents that have to do this. Mm-hmm. It's the kid, you know, it's yeah. the young adult that has to be out there. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that are going to have to push this system if they want anything out of it. And yeah. the idea of like, if I sit here and just kind of wait, you know, and it's it's a hard, harder transition for a lot of these high school students mm-hmm. because they were on 
most of them were on IEP teams where decisions were being made for them. Yeah. That's maybe a huge their, piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe with their input, maybe not with their input. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, unfortunately I still feel like a lot of IEP meetings are run like the kid isn't in the room and, yeah. and that doesn't help in college because suddenly you're the only person in the room and you're having to try to pull all these people from all over campus into your room mm-hmm. to help you. And if you're not doing it, no one's going to do it for you. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that that's where the book was really meant to, to empower and to encourage students that like, listen, this is, this is a game you're going to have to play. No one's going to play it for you. Mm-hmm. And I think you're very right that a lot of these students are not really getting the chance to um, be the authority in their own life. And they're not really always learning the skills um, that they'll need in college. Just in, like they might be fine in the classes if they could access the information, right? But the skills to get the services they need to access the information are just not something that they've uh, been allowed to to right. be trained for or have the experience of in high school and in, in younger grades. So I know collaborative IEP meetings are becoming a thing. Yeah. I really hope that they explode <laughs> and become so much well, more popular. I mean, I, okay, so I learned about collaborative IEP meetings in 1995 when I was getting yeah. my undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. And so the, it's funny that you say, you know, they're becoming more of a thing. It's like we've been, you know, it's been... Oh, you've been pushing, I'm sure. We've been pushing yeah. for years. And mm-hmm. it just, at the end of the forever. day, we're dealing with a much bigger problem, you know, mm-hmm. poorly trained teachers and all these other pieces where it's like, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. students learn how to learn, impli- like many students learn how to learn implicitly in high school. And so mm-hmm. the assumption is by the time they're in college, they're able to explicitly do it. Exactly. And, um, and we know that's just not the case with students with disabilities mm-hmm. or students with diverse learning, whatever it is. But they're thrown into a system where it's like, oh, it's up to you now. You know, yeah. you go out and you you got to you know take what you want. And without having the skills to do that, the students are at a significant disadvantage. Yes, completely agree. Yeah, and I totally uh, hear you and believe you about it being a thing. You know, 20, 20 yeah. 30 years ago, I think as an autism advocate too, um, there's a sort of parallel run of well, we, we knew this stuff. We, we've known this stuff for 40 years. Like, why is it now just being implemented? And it is the difference between the system getting, the system gets in its own way, right? That we're, yeah. we're individuals, we're pushing as individuals and people on their own are trying to do good work, but uh, systemically we're a hot mess. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yep. So can you give, um, I know we've talked about this a lot generally, but for folks who have, uh, some of the listeners of this podcast are either, um, some of them are adults who are going through the college experience now, but many of them have younger children who are uh, autistic ADHD, some kind, other kind of neurodivergence. Some of them have co, uh, co-disabilities with that. Um, are there some specific examples of, of challenges that you can offer that somebody might come into college and hit right away in terms of accessing uh, the support they need? Waking like, up in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> I, people ask at Mansfield mm-hmm. what's the most difficult thing we do mm-hmm. uh, wakes, waking students up in the morning um and it, and it really starts there and I and I'll yeah. you know it's both an analogy and mm-hmm. reality mm-hmm. that no one in any program in the country is going to wake a kid up in the morning mm-hmm. um you know I, and I should say there's of, of course there are programs that will do it but there are not enough college-based programs that are at that level of the first thing that has to happen is a student's got to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the level of support that's needed to do that. If a, if a a high school senior is still not getting up 
in the morning on their mm-hmm. own and starting their day, they're not going to do well and they will fail in college. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I, everything goes from there, right? I mean, it's like, you have to get up, you have to follow your schedule, you have to go um, into your meeting, mm-hmm. you have to go make a meeting, you have to identify what what you need to do for that day. That level of executive functioning um, can't happen until you wake up. Mm-hmm. Once you wake up, that level of executive functioning uh, is, is advanced for most adults. Yes, it is. Adults. And so, um, you know, I feel like the challenges really are about managing that daily schedule independently. Mm-hmm. And um, we we like to say at, at uh, Mansfield Hall, and I, I think I talk about this in the book, but there w- w- there should be three questions on a college exam. You know, uh, my uh, admissions director um, at Mansfield Hall often says that there should only be three questions on a, mm-hmm. on a college exam and uh, our entrance exam. And the first one is, um, are you able to accurately and independently identify when you need help? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first question. The second one is, do you know where to get that help? Mm-hmm. And the third one is, do you know how to use that help on an ongoing basis? And if mm-hmm. you answer no to any one of those three questions, you're not ready for college, mm-hmm. um, independent college, that is. Yeah. Because so many of our students can do one or more of those, but can't do all three of them. And if you don't know when you're struggling, but you know where to get help and you know how to use it. It doesn't yeah. really matter. Uh, if you know when you're struggling, but you don't know where to get the help that you need, then uh, then it's then there's nothing more you can do about it. Or if you know where to get the help, but you don't know how to keep coming back to that help mm-hmm. or how to use that help, mm-hmm. um, then you can just really start to struggle. We're in college towns. And so our students attend any one of the colleges in town. So we're mm-hmm. like the super dorm in a college town. And yeah. so um, like we'll use Burlington, Vermont as an example. So we have about a third of our students that attend university of Vermont, about a third of them attend Champlain college. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about a third of them, uh, attend MATC or not MATC, that's in Madison, uh, the <laughs> Vermont community college. Okay. And so the services and supports at all of those colleges are fantastic. They really are. They're great. University of Vermont has a wonderful writing lab. They have wonderful counseling services. They have a great math lab. They have great um, disabilities. All of these things are wonderful, mm-hmm. but they're all in different buildings. And they all involve you walking through the door to get it. Yeah. And, and that just there. And I think that people underestimate what it takes to walk through a door um, and, and we forget about that. Oh, just go to the math lab or just mm-hmm. go to the writing center. If you need help, just go to the writing center for someone with a social communication challenge, easy. Yeah. society or somebody with whatever it is, even, mm-hmm. even right down to, I've got to schedule an appointment on an app and I've got to reply to that app. And all of those challenges just to get into the door are preventing someone from, from accessing that support. Mm-hmm. And so we forget about that. Like you can have you can send your kid to the best college in this entire country who has the best level of support and the best writing lab and the best methodology. But if they don't walk through the door to use the support, it's worthless. Yeah. And so I'm actually doing a training at a college um, on Friday, um, two different trainings. And one of the questions I have to ask the college is like, you have great support, but are you getting, are you going outside of your door to get the students in the door? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes what we hear from college professionals, well, Hey, listen, my job kind of ends at my, at my office door. It's like, well, but we're dealing with a whole different group of kids now mm-hmm. where you might actually have to step out and go find them if yeah. you really want to support them and serve them, that they're mm-hmm. not going to walk through your door. They might be sleeping. Are you willing to go knock on their college mm-hmm. door? 
Um, and most colleges just really aren't up to that challenge yet. They don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. They don't have the expectations that they need to do that. We're still working within a system that, then uh, I'll tell you a story, but we're still working <laughs> with a system where it's being run by people who are looking at the bottom line. I I often say to people, don't forget that one of the categories in the U.S. News World Ranking Reports of Colleges is is about the acceptance rate. Mm -hmm. The lower you accept, the better your college is. Mm -hmm. Think of that in reverse. The more you reject from your college, the better college you are. And so we are still seeing colleges that are looking at uh, to to really streamline and towards getting the quote unquote smart kids into their college campuses, mm-hmm. and then they're building these additional programs for the other kids, right, yeah. to kind of come and participate. But their focus still isn't on the quote unquote other kids right now. Their mm-hmm. focus is on how are they creating research dollars and getting the smartest, brightest kids in the country who have done the most, you know, school activities and yeah. the best scores. That's still reality. We're still up against a very ableist system that is now making exceptions for the other people. We're still, there's still a lot of other, you know, we're still being othered in many yes. ways. Yes, very much so. Yeah. I, you said so much and I have so many responses and I'm not sure which direction <laughs> to go. I think um, I was really struck just to go back to your waking up in the morning, because I think I worked with like four different clients last week, adults, like in their 30s, 40s, 50s, who are still having trouble getting up in the morning to do the things they need to do. So you're you're kind of framing of that as a, a very advanced, you know, to get up and then go do all the things as being very advanced executive function um, is very striking to me. And I don't know why I haven't thought of that before, because it absolutely is. And so many younger students are still struggling with that so much that it makes a lot of sense that, um, that they're facing so much trouble, just get it, like you said, getting into the yeah. door. Um, and certainly as an autistic person, like there are so many um, ways that it is hard for me, for example, to go to a writing center and have to deal with a new person and deal with a new sensory environment and, you know, find the path there and make sure I know all the exit routes and stuff, right? That builds all this extra stuff attached to going in that I think, you know, even if, the college wasn't financially focused. And even if it really was, everybody was just trying to serve the folks who are coming in, it would still be difficult for them to understand what I need. And so that, you know, also on on top of the, you know, the ableism, the class issues, the like layers of kind of junk (laughs) systemic stuff in the way. um, You know, I, I think that's really important to point out to folks because I think a lot of parents um, have such high expectations for their kids even, you know, hopefully including disabled kids of all strokes to go to college and to get through college is like this huge achievement. Right. Right. And so it is so important to be able to support our students all the way through in all the little ways that offer them that achievement. And um, I also hope the brains that are looking at the numbers start to realize how much you said what the brightest and the smartest, right. That have been yes. most active and most, right. and it's like, we're starting. I think that folks are starting to understand <laughs> that there are plenty of bright, smart people who do amazing in their fields. Um, you know, who, who weren't bright in high school and who had struggled through college. Right. And then come out the other side and right. get to work on their special interests and just go. Right. Yeah. Um, and certainly there are folks who are not too, and they are equally worthy of getting through college. Um, but that, that sort of having to, spin or twist your idea of what does it mean to go to college? What does it mean to be smart, quote unquote, you know, 
it's yeah, there's well, a lot of layers. I, I, I think, you know, I oftentimes talk about that. I, I, where does my, you know, fire come from? Right. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I just completely believe that learning is a civil right, right? Absolutely. That, that education is a civil right. I, human I, right. I've seen it used against people for millennia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that I have a belief that if there's a student, regardless of disability or not disability, who has a desire to learn, they have a right to learn. Mm-hmm. And if they want to do that in a college setting, they should. And oftentimes I was on a NPR um, show in, in Illinois at a, in a college town. And, and I said, you know, if the college is so good at doing everything, right, if the universities are so good at everything they do, why don't they figure out how to teach all kids? Mm-hmm. Like, why does it matter? I mean, like the, the best and the brightest is, is irrelevant if we don't have the diversity and the perspective. Absolutely. And um, what I've learned throughout my career is that, that what we're missing in society is these voices mm-hmm. of the diverse perspectives of students with disabilities, whether it's learning disabilities or autism or, mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. Oh, yeah, broad. Because we, we operate in a world in which we're all together, but then we go to colleges which we're kind of all separated yeah. from that greater world. And so um, I feel like I'm hoping colleges move in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have I have hit enough snags throughout my career to realize that suddenly someone in some department at some big college at some point makes some ruling that is so unbelievably discriminatory in my mind. And they're saying it like, it's just a no brain brainer kind of thing mm-hmm. that this, that's it's change is going to be slow. Yeah. Um, even right down to, I mean, I think, sorry, I'm going to get on a soapbox. That's okay. That's <laughs> we, we spent all this time, you know, watching the special education process happen throughout the seventies and the eighties mm-hmm. and the nineties. And it took us almost 20 to 30 years for someone to be like, Hey, shouldn't we, include students in the general education curriculum more. And we're like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Let's start doing that. Right. And so now we've done this really great piece where, where special education used to be a classroom or mm-hmm. a setting where it's now services. And we're offering these, these opportunities for students to be in the classroom and kind of with their general ed peers and which a- avoids all of sort of the, you know, problems with curricula that were existing with special education classrooms. And now we're like tackling, you know, my generation of, of professionals are now tackling this college challenge, mm-hmm. right? But our, our approach to it right now is to create these separate, these separate things already, yeah. right? Yeah. And I know that there's a bit of like, we have to in order to get it to work, mm-hmm. but we're almost now in some ways feeling comfortable that if, you know, Western college, making up a name, Western college has a program for kids with autism that we're happy with these 20 kids walking around campus together in a group. When we've learned all these lessons over the past 30, 40 years in regular education, that it doesn't work that way. It's not, uh, it's not equitable. It's not Mm -hmm. fair. It doesn't do the students with disabilities, any challenges or any, any uh, wins. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. give any wins to the students without disabilities who really benefit from the broader perspective of having these students within the classroom and participating in a very normal, uh, quote unquote, normal societal way Mm -hmm. as normal means that there are people with disabilities in every walk of life that we live in. Yeah. That it's just expected as part of, it's part of the world. right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because there has been this huge push towards generalized education and I hadn't, I was identified after my after I'd finished my master's. And so I didn't get 
any supports and looking back it's like ah it would have been so helpful but it is true that grouping us all into these little you know little groups is not I mean, it's, so I don't know. I guess I have mixed opinions. It's important, I feel, for autistic adults and other disabled adults to know yeah. other people in their community who are also disabled, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of us are so segregated from, because disabled people are so segregated from yep. um, the world in general, we're also segregated from each other. And so we can't yep. form these bonds. Um, and so in some senses, it's like, okay, a group of disabled students doesn't sound like the worst thing from that that very small perspective. But broadly... You're completely right that it's important to be integrated into the larger society and to um, have people know you and be, you yeah. know, and to know other people and to broaden that whole perspective. Um, and I hadn't really considered that from the point of view of being a college student in a small group of disabled students who's just sort of stuck right. stuck in that. Well, it's we really forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just, you know, you've seen the special education pendulum swing back and forth yeah, yeah. and. And, you know, and I, I think that late 90s, early 2000s, you know, there was just this really big push of with the mainstreaming and the inclusion mm-hmm. that and the getting getting away from group homes and separate settings, yeah. and other pieces, that we also lost sight of the fact that people tend to congregate around interest. Yes. And um, and and people with disability or people with autism tend to oftentimes, and of course, this is as diverse as any other population, but oh, tend yeah. to bond over what their interests mm-hmm. are or what their struggles are, or what their challenges are. Mm-hmm. And so I, I completely agree. And what I love about Mansfield Hall is that, you know, the majority of our students are um, uh, neurodiverse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many have the autism label, many don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the first time that many of them have ever been able to kind of live in this communal setting mm-hmm. where other people understand their their uniqueness mm-hmm. and accept it. You know, we yeah. work with students who are just the most accepting people on the planet. And they really start to develop these relationships that they hadn't ever developed before. Mm-hmm. And they can carry that with them yes. in wonderful ways throughout their entire day. So when it comes to going to this campus that is built for neurotypical people, mm-hmm. they have that bit of, of, you know, courage that they've developed from this group of people that they've, that they identify with in order to bring that to that campus. And so by no means, in, in fact, in many ways, I, you know, I, I think that it's wonderful for people to find that tribe, you know, find their tribe, I'm mm-hmm. sure you're but to find their tribe of people that they can, they can, they can, you know, empathize with and understand. And um, we see the pendulum swinging to the direction of like now creating that for just those people where we start to lose the broader perspective of everybody sort of in that sort of world. So how do yeah. we, how do we have that balance, balance. between um, a student with autism sitting into a college classroom and, and exhibiting behaviors that people go, oh, they just, you know, whatever, you know, they mm-hmm. must have autism. It's no different than the old person over there having hiccups. Like mm-hmm. I can, I, I can forgive or accept or whatever for either behavior because I'm in this, this worldly perspective and I'm able to be in a classroom where everybody learns a little bit differently and that's fine. Yeah. But then for us to have to ask a, pro- a professor permission mm-hmm. to have a student with some unique challenges to enter their classroom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. Do you have any particular advice for students who are looking to enter college in the next couple of years and what they can 
do to give themselves the best shot at making this transition? Yeah. What are some things they should be looking at now or, or learning or skills to develop? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. Cause I think that the answer to that question, I mean, I'm sure if there's kids, students listening right now, they're like, Oh, they're going to tell me to study hard. And I, and I study hard. I'm saying that, <laughs> but move to independence, mm-hmm. like start to you yourself. And I'm I'm talking to those high school students right now, you yourself, you need to start becoming more independent because what is going to be required for this college experience is a higher level of independence than what you're exhibiting right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what we can see with accommodations and supports and services is that it starts to get a little cozy and we start to rely on those things. And it's a little bit easier for us to have mom and dad start to do these things for us or my teacher or my special education advocate or my coach, mm-hmm. right? That really the, the what's going to be necessary is that that you're not learning independent skills and advocacy skills the first day you go to college, but you've started to develop those years before. Mm-hmm. People can tell you and put it on your IEP that you need to be more independent, all these other things, but you really have to make this choice that you are going to start to re- recognize the challenges that are ahead of you and start to uh, conquer those on your own. And so how do you start to become more independent? How do you start to start managing um, your daily life, your exec- your adaptive behaviors, your executive mm-hmm. functioning skills. How do you start to prepare to live on your own? Um, you know, my belief is if someone's wants to learn something, they can learn it. Like, Absolutely. I, I, I think that that's, that's where we have to start with everybody. Right. But you as an individual need to start figuring out how you're going to learn those things, despite the uh, context in which they're being provided to you. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to go to college classroom anymore and no one's going to say, well, if you don't like to write papers, then go ahead and, you know, do a diorama that's mm-hmm. gone. Yeah. You're going to have to write the paper. And and if you think that that's going to change, it is not going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and we'd love it to, don't get me wrong, Daniel. I'd yes. love it. No, I'm with you. It, but it's not going to change. <laughs> and so it's certainly not going to change in the next couple of years. Yeah. And so how do we start to learn these skills to do them and to overcome them and to work harder um, someone that I worked with um, who had a pretty significant learning disability, I said, what, she was so successful in a teacher. I said, so what, you know, what do you think, like, what's the biggest thing that you take away from all of this? You know, what did you do? Like, what was your, where did your resilience come from? And she said, hard work. Yeah. She said that I just had to, at some point I had to realize that there's no accommodation in the world that was going to make my life easier. Mm-hmm. That it was going to level the playing field, but I had to work twice as hard for it. And mm-hmm. so how are, you know, doubling down and working harder and to be able to overcome those challenges is really what it starts taking and practicing that now mm-hmm. um, is really important. The other thing I talk a lot about in the book is to stop thinking about college as a place you apply and a place you go to, and then a place you graduate from mm-hmm. that college is a journey. Yeah. And so to really be realistic about what that journey might look like, um, and what you want out of it. And so again, you know, if there might be familial pressure to go to Princeton and mm-hmm. you know, have that bachelor's degree, but really to pay attention to what is it that you want out of that degree? What are you getting it so that you can hang it on your wall or mm-hmm. are you getting it so that you can live comfortably and then start to chart that process to how to get there. And I use an example in a book of a, a friend that I changed her name, but how she ended up going to four different colleges before mm-hmm. she graduated. Yes. And she got a wonderful degree Mm -hmm. and she's smart and she works with us. I'm going to tell her who it is, but then she works with us and she's phenomenal, but right. She found her path to get through college through four different colleges and she didn't get it right until the fourth one 
fortunately had built up enough credits to not take another 10 years. Yeah. But, you know, that idea of starting to think about community college and certificate programs and, you know, um, guaranteed transfer programs, um, yeah. Madison College in Madison, Wisconsin, you get a, I might say this wrong, but 27 credits and a 2.75, you're automatically accepted in the University of Wisconsin. Yeah. Why would you go to the University of Wisconsin for the most difficult classes in the biggest classrooms mm-hmm. when you can go to a small classroom setting and take those classes in a in a better environment? And I'm and those examples go across the boards, Lane Community College mm-hmm. in Oregon, and um, and so there are all these other pathways to those bigger universities if that's your direction you want to mm-hmm. go. With getting there, being really smart and respectful to your learning uh, needs. Needs, yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Listeners, please check out all the links below. We're going to have the book and Mansfield Hall and all the things. And I hope you'll go find them. Um, Any parting words, Dr. Larock, before we sign Uh, off? You can do it. You can do it. (laughs) You know, I, I, I feel like to the parents out there, and I'm going to bring this up at a talk I'm doing this weekend, uh, we all are parents and we can all agree on one thing. And that is that um, the biggest outcome we want for our kids in the world is for them to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so don't get in the way of their happiness and help them figure out how they can be happy, not how you can be happy for them. And so, um, you know, I think that that's, those are my parting words. Don't forget <laughs> that we're just, I mean, the goal of life is to be happy. And so let's just make sure that we have our students on a pathway to happiness. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Danielle. This was great. Thank you so much again for joining me on the Neurodiverging Podcast today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, comment, send me an email at neurodiverging.coaching at gmail.com and let me know so that we can keep making good stuff for you. I would love to know your thoughts. You can also leave a podcast review on Apple or anywhere else on the web that really helps other people find us. And if you're interested, become a patron at patreon.com slash neurodiverging. Please note that we have all of our transcripts and show notes available at our website at neurodiverging.com, along with many other articles written by me and other neurodivergent folks. Um, I would be so pleased if you went and checked them out. I hope you all have a beautiful day and please remember we are all in this together.